This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased, indeed honored, to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He is, without a doubt, the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, having written close to 200 books. And today we are discussing his uh, one of his newest books, Logistics, The Key to Victory, published by Pen and Sword Press. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Well, I'm trying to do two things, essentially. Firstly, I'm trying to provide an account of logistics and its history. And second of all, I'm trying at the same time to offer an analysis and that rather than seeing a kind of teleological improvement with time and through time, I'm arguing in favor of a kind of adaptation with reference to fitness for purpose and the fitness provided by task, by environment, by means, but without assuming as part of that that, you know, that you, as it were, have what one might call in the crude terms progress. In the beginning of the book, you criticize quite severely the well-known military historian Martin Van Creveld. Why so? Well, his book um, is the major book in the field. It's called Supplying War, uh, and it was first published in 1977, and it has been very frequently reprinted and is the uh, major work in the subject. And um, I find it rather troubling. I mean, if you know the book, you will know that such minor countries as China or India or Japan and such minor regions as Latin America or sub-Saharan Africa and such minor periods as antiquity in the Middle Ages just don't exist. So to put it mildly, I think that the uh, evidential basis for the work is highly problematic. What exactly do you mean, um, asking this question for some of our readers, I'm sorry, some of our listeners, what do you mean exactly by logistics as you employ it in this book? Right, well that's I think a very good question and I 
uh, employ it, as you will know, having read it, in several different um, ways. I mean, first of all, I think it's the art of raising and especially maintaining, or we would classically use the term supplying, but supplies include uh, levies of new soldiers, armed forces. Uh, secondly, I think, comes the relationship with, between logistics and the natural world, both in terms of the resource distribution and also with reference to environmental pressures on supply systems. Uh, thirdly, I think, comes logistic and the un logistics and the underlying economic systems in terms of, I would say, agriculture, industry, and what one might call, to use a modern term, network capabilities, whether you're talking about merchants, capitalism, cultural or other forms of capability. Uh, then there's logistics and its relationship with government processes, and then it's logistics and the nature and scope of military tasking. So at that uh, area, you've got, as it were, logistics at the strategic level, the operational level, the tactical level, uh, with reference to both regular and irregular warfare, and in terms of land, sea, and air capabilities. So I would argue that whilst by no means the only way to approach war, and as you will know, I've written on, for example, war and technology or war and culture, I do think it's an important element, and I do think it's an element I underplayed in my earlier work, which is one of the reasons I set out to work, uh, to write this book. Uh, you characterize the Romans as possessing, quote, a far-flung, unquote, logistical system. Uh, how would you compare the Roman system of logistics with those of, say, Alexander the Great, or for that matter, the Carthaginians? Well, I think that's interesting. I mean, as far as the um, Romans are concerned, uh, for a lot of their history, the Romans were essentially defending existing possessions. And that does not enable one or give one the task of... Um, providing for militaries as they advance by essentially despoiling areas or extorting um, supplies from areas into which they advance. And I think you could fairly say that that was a, uh, an aspect of Alexander the Great's uh, methods, though, of course, in his case as well, taking over uh, the Archimedes um, Persian Empire meant that to an extent he was able to um, key into their existing supply networks. Um, in the case of the Carthaginians, people most commonly are thinking of Hannibal's expedition in the Second Punic War, which, of course, he left the Carthaginian area of Spain, moved across southern France and into Roman-dominated Italy, and then essentially had to support himself by despoiling the areas in which he campaigned. So I think the Romans had a different set of tasks, and I think that, um, you know, there were failings when they move sometimes outside the empire into areas where, um, as for example, when they're campaigning against the Parthians, areas where supplies are modest and where these supplies can be lessened by um, sort of uh, destruction um, by the defenders. And also you've got the problem for the Romans when they move, for example, into what we would call Scotland in the early um, eight, 80s um, CE or AD, uh, where again there are, there are problems. Uh, but on the whole, the Romans proved good at articulating their system so that they could move both troops and supplies. Um, 
the two combining, obviously, in things such as rations and equipment. And their enormous energy at road building helps to lessen the friction of distance, but although so do, also does stationing legions in specific locations for long times. And on top of that, they use the Mediterranean to provide them with a kind of uh, supply system in depth in the sense that they are able safely to move large supplies of grain around the Mediterranean. And that, of course, is the key to um, supporting their armed forces and indeed uh, the stability represented by the, um, the peacefulness of the city of Rome. Why do you say that, quote, in the ancient and medieval world, logistics was essentially muscle-powered on land, unquote? Well, I'm thinking there about the need to rely on human muscle to carry things or alternatively animal muscle, most obviously horses, but not just horses. I mean, you have in certain parts of the world, depending upon the environment, um, disease and such like, or depending upon the availability of animal species, you have things like camels, elephants, llamas. So I would say that... Um, you've got fundamentally muscle is the key component to moving things. And of course, that poses problems because you need supplies for the animals, most obviously fodder, though water is also, clean water is also important, in order to support that muscle. How did logistics change, if at all, in the age of gunpowder? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I would say the principal difference was, of, was that you have to support gunpowder weaponry and there are particular problems with any logistical system if you're supporting things that cannot be uh, obtained locally or manufactured locally. So some things that you need generally can be so in many of the areas people campaign it. So water is a classic instance. But in the case of gunpowder, and the weapons, either handheld weapons or cannon, that are being used, um, you have to transport those. Gunpowder itself is not particularly easy to manufacture, and their uh, constituents like saltpeter are not found universally. And the same thing is obviously true of the skills required to manufacture uh, weapons. Um, and that poses issues and problems. So. I would say that air element can be underrated. I mean, of course, there is a good book on the, on the system by which troops were moved. Um, you can think of two good studies there. Caroline Finkel's book on the Ottoman road from uh, Constantinople to Hungary and Geoffrey Parker's um, analogous work on the Spanish road, both of which are very fine pieces of work. Um, I think it's fair to say we don't have comparable studies uh, for most uh, military systems. Now, as, as you mentioned, the Ottoman Turks, how would you compare their logistical system with that of uh, Ming China in the... Um uh, 16th century? Well, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think that going back to what I said at the beginning, um, and, and by the way, can I mention, I think this is an, a really important way to discuss subjects because I think comparisons within an era help to assess, um, uh, as it were, and hope to offer and help to offer an approach to the uh, evaluation of capability. So in the case of Ming China in the 16th century, there is again the problem of fitness for purpose. Some of the opponents 
are easier to fix and campaign against than others. So it's easier to campaign against the Japanese in Korea in the 1590s, which is relative proximity to uh, Chinese resource systems um, and a relatively, I wouldn't go as far as to say slow moving, but fundamentally we're talking about infantry warfare, so a relatively slow moving type of warfare, whereas the Ming have the enormous problem as was brutally shown in their defeat in 1449, of power projection onto the steppes. And they're, they're lacking, um, I think I would, I would say, they, they're lacking the necessary um, operative means to, to, and logistical support to be effective onto the steppes. And what's rather interesting is that that situation changes with their Manchu uh, successors from the 1690s. But the Manchu, unlike the Ming, of course, the Manchu are, from their origins, a steppe people and have better understanding of the exigencies of warfare using cavalry and against a cavalry opponent. Now, in the case of the Ottomans, what you have is a really interesting system which is effective both on land and at sea and effective both in infantry and in cavalry. So therefore, what I and also effective in very different terrains. I mean, the plains of Hungary, for example, are very different to campaigning in the Caucasus. Um, So what I would say is you've got with the Ottomans a reasonably high level of all-round logistical capability, and that helps to take them to repeated successes in the 15th and 16th centuries, and then gives them a greater amount of durability than one might have otherwise anticipated in the 17th century. And uh, how did siege warfare operate in the muscle power era of logistics? Well, siege warfare um, uh, continues to be important whether you're using gunpowder or or pre-gunpowder siege engines. You have to obviously uh, move supplies, including the firepower element, so that requires a lot of muscle. You have to dig the trenches. That requires an enormous amount of muscle. And you then have to, well, whatever method you're going to, uh, you, may, you may just simply try and storm the walls. But if you're going to try and sack the walls or dig ditches or trenches towards them, that further requires muscle. Um, and the difficulty is, as I argued in the book, that all this takes time. It all requires a formidable number of men, uh, as well as horses and other animals, and that this requires an enormous logistical support. Um, and that that means that just simply by resting on the defensive and sustaining a siege, even if your fortress eventually falls, you might have imposed as the defender a serious burden on the attacker. And that burden... Uh, which is the enormous pressure at logistical pinch points, uh, may well have caused casualties in terms of disease and such like, but also would just have burnt up a lot of time. How did naval logistics operate in the pre-steam power era of uh, naval warfare? Well, uh, very much depends upon what range you're trying to operate on, and also in particular the number of men you've got on your boat or ship. If you're using a galley, um, you have a relatively large number of men compared to the draft of the ships. You've not got very much 
storage space and you would generally operate in inshore waters not too far from bases or not too far from places where you can beach and take on fresh water and hopefully some food. Um, obviously, if you're using a deep draft ship um, with sails so that you do not need such a large number of men, um, then you have a greater range. So partly, as I said, it's to do with the range you're operating at. But I think it's fair to say there are enormous problems posed by the limitations of the shipping of the period vis-à-vis currents and uh, weather conditions, uh, particularly calms, uh, which meant that you couldn't predict journeys, which meant you couldn't predict your demands on your supplies, which meant that that creates a fresh uncertainty, uh, as well as often a cause of disease and very high death rates on voyages. How unique was uh, Wallenstein's logistical system as a military entrepreneur in 17th century Europe? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think the best book on the subject of logistics in that period in Europe, specifically during the Thirty Years' War, is David Parrott's account, uh, which focuses, as you will know, on the French of the 17th century, particularly the period of Richelieu and Mazarin, but essentially argues that behind what might appear to be the mechanism of an absolutist state is, in fact, a reliance on the uh, entrepreneurial systems and connections and credit that could be raised by aristocrats. Now, the difference in the Wallenstein case there is he's doing exactly the same thing. The emperor is doing exactly the same thing with him. But, of course, he is a new aristocrat. He's been made Duke of Friedland. Uh, he's been given um, a lot of estates confiscated by Protestant nobles uh, in Bohemia. So there is a degree of novelty and there is also a degree of scale, I think it's fair to say, in the Wallenstein exercise. But in terms of using what uh, in Britain we called in the past a public-private partnership. Um, in other words, the state uh, being heavily dependent on uh, other elements um, over which its control is very limited, I would say that's a characteristic of the period. And indeed, to that extent, my discussion of Europe builds on an earlier book I wrote called um, a war in Europe, 1450 to 2000, in which I very much tried to take uh, that, that approach. Now, would it be true to say that your prime disagreement with modernization theory, as it is applied to the history of military logistics, is that the theory itself uh, is sort of an a-empirical, ideal type of um, history in which one uh, has a theory and then one tries most most cases are rather fruitlessly to assemble the empirical evidence to support it. Yes, I think that's a very fair um, analysis of that, Charles, and some people will agree and others won't. I mean, as people will know who've read my stuff, I also feel the same is true of quite a lot of the writing on uh, military history, that people advance a theory or have a preference, whether it is a theory in terms of, say, military revolution or a preference in terms of, for example, the emphasis on technology as the enabler and, uh, of change and the paradigm of efficiency and capability, and then use those ideas in order, as you correctly put it, to assemble the evidence accordingly. And I'm very wary of this big picture um, 
um, account. I mean, my argument on the uh, on the European case was that um, the uh, logistics, the Crown, the government had often very limited control over the situation, both in terms of the cohesion of the armies, of their links with the Crown, and what I would call the politics of logistics. And I think the politics of logistics is an element that tends to be underplayed because, as you say, people treat it in, um, uh, you know, in terms of modernization theory, and modernization theory doesn't really... Um, in my view, allow adequately for that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Did the emergence of the what is called the fiscal military state result in more effective provision of logistics in the 18th century Europe? I think to a considerable extent, extent yes. Um, but I would argue that that's part and parcel of what we call, uh, you know, I was referring back to the politics of it. I mean, I would argue essentially that um, the um, political stability and strength of state after state in Europe had been very badly hit by the Reformation and related struggles between crown and elites, uh, which really made it very, very difficult to run an effective system of tapping the resources in society. And I would argue that from the mid um, 17th century, um, these relationships on the whole improve. I mean, there's the excellent book by R.J.W. Evans on that for the Habsburg lands. Uh, there's William Bike on that for Longer Dog. Uh, I would argue it happens in Britain after the so-called Glorious Revolution. And, the base, and therefore, the system works better, not because it is a more modern system, or for that matter, a less modern system, the modernity doesn't come into it, but simply because the ideal and necessity of cooperation proves easier to elicit uh, in that uh, political and social context. Why were the Manchus... Uh, so unsuccessful in their campaigns against uh, the Burmese and the Vietnamese in the late uh, 18th century after their previous success in, successes, I should say, in Tibet and Central Asia? Well, I think that's very interesting. I mean, and obviously when trying to explain something that doesn't happen, there are always difficulties. What I would suggest is that First of all, that the unfamiliar, heavily forested environments that they encountered in campaigning in Burma in 1765 to 70, in Vietnam in 1788 to 89, were very difficult anyway for large-scale military operations. One might remember that the Ming had failed in Vietnam in the early 15th century. Um, the disease, uh, particularly malaria, affected troops and horses very uh, hard. And I would say that... Um, the problems posed for logistics was part of a, a bigger problem for the Chinese government in operating in these areas. Um, 
malaria and the other issues, the other disease uh, environments of tropical rainforest was not a question when you were uh, campaigning into Sinkian against the Zungars or into Tibet. And I think that posed considerable advantages for the Manchu who were familiar with operating in both of those areas, particularly the former, and who also were able to win support, uh, certainly in Sinkien in the 1750s, and also in Tibet in the 17-teens, by exploiting or benefiting from divisions uh, among their opponents. Would it be true to say that for you, the... um successes on the logistical level of the Western powers in both World War One and World War Two are part and parcel of a democratic or at the very least pluralistic polity? Well, I think that's actually quite an important element. I would say the protection cost of achieving support was relatively low. So what do I mean by that? Um, the Soviet Union, as we know, in World War II, and Nazi Germany, as we know, actually killed quite a lot of its own soldiers for, in their eyes, failing to show sufficient resolution. And I think it's fair to say that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were both extremely brutal in raising their resources, which carries with it protection cost elements. Um, I think what's interesting is you get far, far, far less of that element in the case of Britain or the United States, or for that matter, Australia or Canada. Um, So I think those are important. The other things um, is that in the case of Britain and the United States, um, you're also able to benefit from the strengths, it's not just of democracy, but also of free market capitalism, which always, like any system, has its limitations, but which is more efficient, more effective, and more responsive than a uh, diktat uh, state method, um, which in the case of the Soviet Union only operated really at the benefit of enormous terror. And you could argue in the case of Nazi Germany, uh, didn't operate terribly well, but again used vast terror uh, as in um, the use of slave labor. How would you compare the respective uh, logistical systems of the Americans and the Soviets as uh, both operated in Afghanistan? Oh, um, you mean in the the Soviets from the 1980s and the Americans since 2001? Well, I think it's fair to say that the Soviets had an easier task because they had contiguous line borders and also because the expectations of, um, um, shall we say, of of quality of life, shall we say, uh, ice cream et al., um, on the part of their soldiers was much more modest. Um, the United States was supporting a much more difficult uh, commitment because there was a lot that required air support. Uh, there was no ports they could use as they had used, for example, um, in the Gulf Wars. Um, so I think the Americans faced a greater difficulty. Nevertheless, the Americans, uh, as a society that was well attuned to handling logistical issues, proved well up to the task. And the failure, eventual failure of um, American-led Western intervention in Afghanistan was not a logistical failure. It was a failure of, as it were, um, an understanding of the very difficulty of the task politically. I noticed that in your discussion, you um, sort of uh, compare 
um, I'm sorry, in your discussion of the fall of uh, South Vietnam, your arguments about why it failed, specifically that it was overly reliant upon American um, logistical systems, American hardware, uh, which at a certain point was cut off by the American Congress, I believe in 1974. Uh, would you say that, in fact, this is a similar type of uh, failure that resulted in the fall of the pro-Western government in um, Afghanistan over the summer, this past summer? Well, I certainly think um, the American stance did not help in this summer, but I think it's fair to say, without in any way uh, commenting adversely on the Afghans, that the South Vietnamese put up a much stronger fight against North Vietnamese attack and did so for a longer period of time after the withdrawal of American troops. So I think there were serious weaknesses with the Afghan government and military um, and those weaknesses obviously were exploited by the Taliban and by their use of money and intimidation in order to change loyalties. Um, I think if you look back at the uh, 1975 fall of South Vietnam you will find uh, as indeed the uh, the previous year's fighting and the year before that, that there was, uh, you know, the South Vietnamese military fought hard. Um, but you're absolutely right that if you are particularly reliant uh, to a degree on air power, then if the maintenance and supplies and weaponry for the air power is withdrawn, then you're absolutely right, you're in a very difficult position. And that was the case in, in, in both instances. How do you see the future of military logistics, especially that of the PRC and the USA? Well, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, I've got a chapter, as you know, called uh, Into the Future. And you know, I, I would hope people would read that because I think it's, it, it, it's suggestive. Um, that's how I would always try uh, to be. I mean, there are contextual changes, some very important ones. I mean, the opening up of the sea passages to the north of Asia and North America, uh, the increased strain of operating in areas affected by heat and water shortage. So there are contextual changes that are very important and that it's not clear um, how far there'll be capability advantages for particular powers um, in um, in coping with those. But if we're just looking with where we are at the present moment, it used to be assumed that China would be primarily a near-China power. In other words, that its naval forces would be um, operative essentially in the Western Pacific and that it would not have a global range of logistical ambition or capability. The extent to which that's still the case is unclear. I mean, China is obviously developing interests in basing warships at considerable distance. That, of course, has its own problems and issues, both militarily, including logistically and politically. But it's developing those interests. It's uh, deployed um, naval forces into American or close to American waters uh, off Alaska, um, it's shown interest in uh, in the Atlantic. It's shown interest in the Eastern Pacific. So um, it may well be the case that um, a global range 
for China means uh, the uh, the Chinese emphasis on air and sea transport rather than propinquity, rather than nearness, becomes much more significant. For the United States, obviously, there are particular issues bound up in whether the state has sufficient access to transport vessels of its own, whether it has, um, as it were, um, enough of an infrastructure, a logistical infrastructure. America used to be the supreme power in that. But as you will know, in things like the manufacture of containers, um, you know, to, to go on either ships or railways, uh, the Chinese are increasingly uh, particularly active and playing a dominant role or near dominant role. And one can see the same thing coming in in elements like rare metals, which are all part of logistics. Logistics is part of the supply chain on which production relies, not just the use of the final weapon by the military. So I think that the American government um, needs um, to be much more acutely aware of the military dimension of the uh, production line logistical uh, competition that is existent at all levels. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, it would be definitely that logistics is crucial and that the existing accounts of it are deeply flawed and that this is an important way to understand the subject of what I'm offering on a global level. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.